Robert, before we speak about Ralph Waldo Emerson and William James specifically, I wondered if you would be willing to tell me why did you decide of all the people you could write biographies of to do them of Henry David Thoreau, Ralph Waldo Emerson, and William James? I didn't decide them all at once. I sort of picked one, and then one thing led to another. Which was first? Uh, well, what I tried to do, I set out to write a biography of William James about 30-something years ago, and very quickly discovered that I couldn't do it. I didn't know enough about medicine. I didn't know enough about the history of philosophy. I didn't know enough about all kinds of things that he was interested in. So I had to put it aside and ask myself what I could do. And looking around on that, I decided since I have lived uh, for some time in Concord, although I wasn't brought up there, my family was had moved there, I thought, all right, we'll try and do Henry Thoreau. And so I started there. I and see. that led to, uh, it took 10 years. And after that, um, partly at the suggestion of my mother, who said she liked what I'd said about Emerson, I thought, well, all right, I'll try him too. And uh, did that, and then uh, that took another 10 years, <laughs> and so 20 years down the line, I finished the Emerson book and thought, well, all right, uh, it's William James, now or never. I see. Now, initially, why did you want to do James? Because he was somebody that I really uh, connected with and cared about and turned to. I went to school in the 50s, and what was taught then or at least what I picked up. I'm sure all kinds of things were taught. What I picked up was that the great tradition in America was the Puritan tradition and its leavings, its afterward, and the dark, tragic uh, tradition. And that the the mere optimists like Emerson, uh, Thoreau, Whitman, those people were to be avoided. Mm-hmm. But I found myself reading these people anyway. I would try dutifully to take the tragic view of everything and the Puritan view of everything, but I found myself in the evenings going down and, and sort of slumming with these optimists and enjoyed it and was reading them. And after I had written a few books, um, ordinary critical books, I found the world of critical theory becoming less interesting, and I thought maybe I will try what one of my teachers did and that is writing a biography, which is at least a narrative. It's not sort of here's what I think about so and so's work. And so today we're going to, we're going to focus on uh, more Ralph Waldo Emerson and William James. Okay. And I thought to start uh, for some of our listeners who might not be familiar with those. I mean, I'm sure most people, at least most Americans, are familiar with the names, but who might not be familiar with. Ralph Waldo Emerson and William James, I thought it might be good if you could just say a few words to place them in American history. Okay, well, Emerson uh, was born in 1803, right after the founding of the country. He died in 1882. His life takes up essentially the first three quarters of the, the 19th century, up through the Civil War, certainly. And he's a foundational figure. Uh, he, his uh, address called the American Scholar was called by Oliver Wendell Holmes America's Intellectual Declaration of Independence. Emerson was a poet and a prose writer, wrote great essays, and his radical individualism is what a great deal of American character flows from, 
as well as American writing. He's a, he's a major figure. Mm. William James is the brother of Henry James, the novelist, and William was a psychologist, philosopher, doctor, and writer on religion. Born in 1842, he died in 1910, so we're getting down into the early 20th century with him. His life overlaps Emerson's by some years, and he, in fact, knew the older Emerson a little and picked up some things from him, although he's quite a different sort of thinker. And James's great achievements are in religious studies, a book called The Varieties of Religious Experience, another one called The Will to Believe. In psychology, he wrote the first great and generally accepted account of psychology as a science, as a physiology-based, a lab-based, a body-based account of the mind. And uh, as a philosopher, he's famous for a philosophy called pragmatism, which we've been hearing a lot of in the newspaper these days. Um, the Obama administration is called pragmatist, the money comes But James also pushed a theory called radical empiricism. And pragmatism is the view that you judge anything by its, its outcomes, all of its outcomes. In other words, if you march into a foreign country and make a mess of it with good intentions, the good intentions don't count. It's what happens, it's events, results, and all of the results, good and bad. Radical empiricism is a view that's often sort of opposed to idealism, which holds that what's real is everything we experience. And the interesting thing about that is that anything that we experience can't be excluded. So all of a sudden, dreams, hallucinations, all kinds of things, if we experience them, have to be considered part of the real world. Mm. James also a very powerful and transitional figure. So, Robert, my interest in all this is that I have been studying and practicing a, a, a contemporary spiritual path, and I started to wonder what the uh, American roots of that way of thinking might be. And I started with Emerson because I saw similarities to his thinking to some of the things that I was studying and learning about myself. And then, of course, once you start somewhere, just like you started your biographies, one thing leads to the next. Uh, and I've kept, kept on learning how, how thoughts have developed, not only in America, but, but in the world. And the first thing I wanted to, to speak with you about um, at this point is that it became clear to me as I read your biographies and as I've read other things about Ralph Waldo Emerson and William James that they were both part of a modernization process uh, that was initiated by the Western Enlightenment in Europe that came to America. I mean, the American Revolution and, and the, the creation of the American nation was really a putting into into the action of nation building a lot of the principles of the French Enlightenment. Yep, true. And that brought the world out of a period which was really, in terms of thinking, dominated by the church, dominated by the great traditions, uh, and started to bring in a, a secular possibility 
for understanding the world. Now, in Emerson's case, he, he was earlier, as you said, than James. He was inspired by Goethe, as you write about in your biography. He is probably most easily associated with Romanticism, you know, the German Romanticism of Goethe, the English Romanticism of Wordsworth and, and Coleridge, and seems to set himself up against the kind of empiricism that David Hume was promoting, the, the scientific, that, that, the very hard scientific view of reality. And first, I guess I'd just say, would you agree with that? Well, yes and no. When Emerson was a young divinity student, he got to studying Hume, and whether it was Hume or something else at the same time, he became temporarily blind. as a kind of mind-induced hysterical blindness, it's mm -hmm. called, and was unable to read for most of a year. It's as though Hume put his eyes out. Uh, at the same time, the Emerson is an Enlightenment figure himself, and his foundational reading, much of it, is in a group of people called the Scottish Common Sense Philosophers, Adam Smith and a bunch of people who came after him. And Scottish Common Sense is a sort of continuation of of the Enlightenment, except that it's trying to include and make room for religious matters or more spiritual matters. Wilson has a strong allegiance to the Enlightenment, and he loves it, and he follows that path to individualism quite a good deal and never turns his back on it. But as he went along, he managed to fold into it um, this Scottish common sense and also the Eastern Enlightenment. Uh, Emerson was one of the first people to read the new English translation of the Bhagavad Gita when it came out and it became a book that he passed around to his friends and to his circle, and they all read it. And Henry Thoreau began to read Eastern philosophy with a vengeance. So I think by the time either... Emerson or Thoreau is doing their serious, mature work. There is the beginning of a of a strain of Asian thought and enlightenment in there as well. So it's it's a little more complicated that way. Right. So so it's it's misleading, although not, I suppose, completely wrong to just lump him in with Romanticism. Yeah, I don't think that will will quite do it on the on the surface of it. One of the, the Many things I love about Emerson is that he's quite open to science. When he was a young man, he was a minister, and he became a very important minister very quickly in a major Boston church. He was a very big deal. He was on the school board. He was chaplain to the Senate, and all these things. And he's about 30. <laughs> and his wife suddenly died tragically of tuberculosis, and he went to Europe to recover, and when he came back, he was going to be a scientist. He said he wanted to go into natural history. But he quickly discovered that he wasn't trained for it. And he was not going to be a scientist. He had too much else going on. And also that there was no way to make a living as a scientist at that time in those days. But his openness to science, his interest in it, his love of it, it was called natural philosophy, I think. Mm -hmm. And any effort to understand nature, which is the title of Emerson's first book, great book, 
any attempt to understand nature is science, part of science. So Emerson comes into this, yes, with a Western Enlightenment um, stick, with an Eastern Enlightenment stick. He's pro-science, and at the same time, he's also in favor of the spirit mm-hmm. and uh, religious enthusiasm. Because Emerson, as you said, he, he began his career as a minister, as a Unitarian minister, eventually left the ministry. But from what I have read, what he was always interested in was the individual's direct experience of the divine. Right. He's interested in religious experience, uh, which will be the same story with William James later on. That means he is really not interested in churches. He's not much interested in the Bible. Emerson almost never quotes the Bible. He's not interested in religious figures, bishops, um, clergymen, religious ritual or religious forms. Uh, what one might call institutionalized religion simply had no more interest for him. And it, to the extent that he's religious, he's interested in personal religious feelings, experience. So if we jump ahead, as you had said, Emerson's work was really in the first half of the 1800s, and then William James in the late 1800s, in the first decade of the 1900s. But William James really came at a later period of modernization. And, he really did, yeah. And I think specifically, at least from, from my reading, it was the publication of, of Darwin's Origin of Species, which created a very radical shift in the way that people were thinking about science, uh, and it certainly seemed to have a big impact on William James and his circle of early colleagues the, called the Metaphysical Club, which included Charles Peirce and Oliver Wendell Holmes. And in some ways, they seemed to be applying the same kind of thinking that Darwin applied to biology. Uh, they were applying it to philosophy and, and psychology, or at least James was. Yeah, I think it's true. The Origin of Species comes out in 1859, and in January, I think it actually was published in December of the previous year, within a month of its publication, people were talking about it in America and uh, at Concord, and Henry Thoreau became very quickly a pronounced Darwinian uh, advocate. Mm-hmm. And Emerson, who had long been a friend of Louis Agassiz, who was the chief opponent of Darwin, right. nevertheless read it and was interested in it and could see that it was the way things were going. But when James took it up and he got to it fairly early, it really became the guiding principle for much of his early thought. I mean, I think he understood Darwin profoundly, and you can see it when he writes about Darwin. And he writes in one place, he makes a kind of Darwinian explanation of why we have consciousness. And the Darwinians ask uh, when any organ or any attribute of any creature or animal is it, mentioned, what advantage does it convey in the struggle for life? Mm. And James would go ahead and ask right flat out, all right, consciousness, that seems to be one of the big things that we have as people with many creatures seem not to have, or even if if they do, it's in a slightly different form. What is the purpose, the evolutionary purpose of consciousness? And he has a wonderful answer for that. 
sort of an answer. It's a suggestion. He's not a dogmatist. He says, could it be that what consciousness gives us is some way to pick through the blinding, dashing world full of, of impulses that we face every day? Open your eyes and look around. I'm looking at hundreds of books, hundreds of pictures on my walls, paint, there's flies, there's a fan, the floor is covered with other stuff. What do I focus on? What do I give my attention to? Mm-hmm. James came to think that consciousness, the function of consciousness, was to permit us to focus our attention on this and not that, to try to do this or not that, that it was a selecting principle, mm-hmm. and that, that was what gave us evolutionary advantage. That's a wonderful insight. Did Emerson also use that phrase, selecting principle, or, or was that only James? It's James's huge emphasis. He's mm-hmm. interested in attention. Emerson did once say, man is a selecting principle. Okay. So it's back there, also. If we move on, one of the, the ways in which I've been thinking about Emerson and James, uh, and I think, in a sense, this is easier to see with, with Ralph Waldo Emerson than, than William James, but but in a sense, I was thinking that, I mean, certainly they were both teachers and both phenomenal teachers. Their students, if, as they say, you, you recognize the teacher by their fruits, Emerson and James both had some pretty powerful fruits uh, amongst their students. But I also was thinking that in many ways, you could see them as spiritual teachers. I'm not sure they would see themselves that way necessarily, but if I define a spiritual teacher as a teacher who both teaches about the the nature of reality, but also teaches about how to then relate to that reality, then I see in Emerson's case, in his transcendentalism, you know, he speaks in nature and then in his essay, The Oversoul, uh, about the fundamental nature of reality and the fundamental nature of a human being as being a collective soul that he called the oversoul. Mm-hmm. And what he seemed to be teaching people and and also trying to put into practice himself was what he called self-reliance, which was more than just rugged individualism. It really was trying to rely on that deepest part of oneself, which is the collective part of humanity. Yeah, it's really, self-reliance is a, kind of a misleading uh, tag for it because it suggests the self-sufficient individual. Mm-hmm. And Emerson was not really interested in that at all. In another essay earlier than, than the famous one called Self-Reliance, he talks about it as self-trust. And I find that a, a more helpful way to put it, or le- less misleading, because mm-hmm. what self-trust for Emerson is about is learning to trust your own best thoughts and learning to trust your own best self and one of the reasons you can do that is that you do share a mind with all other minds. There is one mind common to all people, says Emerson. I remember there was one part in your biography where uh, I believe it said that Emerson, when he would walk around, would remind himself to be self-reliant. <laughs> and it really struck me that, that this wasn't just a, a theory. It was actually something he personally was putting into practice. You really had to. Um, one of the things, Self-Reliance is the second essay in his first book of essays. But be, just before he wrote it, and while he was putting the thoughts together, he had done something called the Divinity School Address, given a talk. 
Cambridge. And the Divinity School address is in favor of personal, spiritual, uh, religious feelings, but it's a sort of an attack on historical Christianity. Upon talking too much about Jesus, and too much about the Church, and too much about um, the Bible and all these things, and in protesting against that, Emerson kicked up a hornet's nest, and suddenly he was attacked from all sides. And the newspapers became filled with personal attacks, and mothers would take their children across to the other side of the street to stay away from this sort of mad dog that began to come in the public papers. And then at that point, he had the real, had to face the real business of self-trust. Mm to trust what he had said, to trust what he had thought, even though he was being attacked and assailed for it. I, I think I didn't realize the magnitude of the attack. Well, it it was enormous, and I may not have spent enough time emphasizing the reaction to it, but it was far more attention than anything he'd ever said was given to the mm-hmm. Divinity School address, and almost all of it negative. Right. And suddenly he had to face the fact that he was a pariah and he was not saying what the people wanted. And he had to stick it through. And he did. Mm-hmm. The thing I did remember was that even a year later on its anniversary, the firestorm was still coming at him. So that certainly implies uh, that it was quite a, quite a backlash. And then the American Scholar Address that you mentioned earlier, that was after self-reliance. Well... No, actually, I think it's before. Mm-hmm. The American scholar is, Thoreau may have heard it in graduation, I think it's 1837. Mm-hmm. And self-reliance grows out of sermons and things that Emerson had been working on through the uh, the 30s, but it was not published until, I think, 41. And in the American scholar, he really uh, was calling for a certain American independence in in scholarship. And uh, as I remember, he was advocating no reliance on history, but on finding a true, I would say, an autonomous or an original American scholarship. Yeah, yeah. It's true, although one has to also face the irony that this was a man who read everything and read compulsively. That's right. I certainly noticed that from your biography. The the amount of uh, material he would read in any given month was somewhat staggering. So he's really not saying don't read history. Right. Um, he's just saying you have to you read history as though it were the commentary and your life is the text mm-hmm. instead of some other life. Right. If you read it with your own life in mind, then almost anything can be useful and can help it. You just don't want to be lured away from the main topic. And again, if we move to James, I mean, one of the things I was struck by in in your biography was the period towards the end of William James's life where he had been asked to give a speech on the 100th anniversary, I think, of Emerson's birthday. Right. And he spent some time prior to that rereading all of Emerson's work. And he seemed to ingest the you know, the essential teachings of Emerson, the, the self-reliance uh, in, in a way he hadn't before. And, and at least from what I read in, in your biography, it seemed that it, it almost fueled some period of time that seemed to last a couple of years, maybe, uh, of incredibly creative uh, outpouring of his. That's right. I mean, he 
he does the Emerson address, he has to get it ready for um, 19.3. And this is right when he's at work on the varieties of religious experience. And so the Emerson feeds into that very much. And mm. when James first was aware of Emerson and knew Emerson, he was perfectly capable of making fun of him and or drawing little cartoons about meeting the great man at a, a shoeshine shop in Cambridge. But he was also reading his poetry and the other stuff so that he was both able to make fun of one of his father's friends and a much older person. And at the same time, recognized that there was something there and something for him. When he reread it all, <laughs> he sometimes would write in the margin, my idea exactly, mm-hmm. and, or fits my philosophy too. Right. And you can see him comparing himself already to Emerson. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because many of Emerson's ideas and James's ideas match, and yet in a certain very fundamental way, their philosophies don't really match at all. Oh, they're quite different. Emerson is really in in the idealist tradition. Mm -hmm. He's a Platonist, loves Plato, loves the idea that there are general ideas, there are large patterns to everything, to the world, and, and that we are just little examples of it. And James is really a radical Aristotelian on the other side and does not believe in a platonic world of perfect ideas. He says a platonic idea is as much a myth as the jack of spades. Right. And yet, as I had said about Emerson, there's a certain way in which you can almost see James as a, as a spiritual teacher in a certain way. No, very much so. Uh, because he does have a worldview that it's not idealism, it's anti-metaphysical. He, in his essays, Does Consciousness Exist in a World of Pure Experience? He speaks about reality being just what's experienced next. It's a very creative process, and every next experience adds to what was there before. And it's not all happening in some metastatic metaphysical universe. No, no. So he sees the universe as pluralistic. It's a lot of things are happening. A lot of things are being creative. It's not just one landscape that we all exist in. That's right. And, and so that's his sort of, you know, if, if Emerson taught about the oversoul and the deep underlying unity of humanity, James taught about this creative process, which was the universe. And if Emerson spoke about the self-reliance, which meant relying on this deeper humanity, James taught pragmatism, which was to always look at, as you said earlier, always look at the effects of your actions, see how what you're doing is is playing out in this world of ongoing experience. Yeah, the actual results. And and in a sense, he was he was practicing pragmatism in in a similar way to Emerson practicing self reliance. What was appealing about both of them is that philosophy for them is not just some little spider web of words that they do for to profit or to get tenure in some school. It's, it's really to be immediately applied to the business of living. Mm-hmm. Right. And that struck me, you know, reading this, cause, because um, I've been someone who's interested in philosophy and spirituality for some time, but somehow the American philosophers, you don't tend to bump into them as much as the European philosophers. And it struck me reading first Emerson and then, and then James, and since then others, that there's a particular part of the American character, which does tend to be utilitarian, and that may have its good and bad points, but it means that philosophy is seen as a tool, as something that should be useful. Yeah. 
not not just uh, an, an exchange of ideas. Right, and James's ideas about psychology were the same things. He was mm -hmm. not interested in the academic mapping of the mind. He was interested in psychology as a uh, therapeutic tool, something that could actually help people who were in trouble. Right. And James was a very great teacher. I mean, he, he really, of course, was an actual teacher. He taught at Harvard for many years. Emerson was a teacher in a different sense. He never didn't teach in the school, although he said that if he'd ever been offered a professorship in a country college, he would have taken it. Mm -hmm. But he never was, and he never did. And he, I think he was fine with not being in, in it. James was a teacher all the way through, and he was the kind of teacher uh, did a lot more than just show up for class and talk for 50 minutes. He made friends with all these students. He took all these students in. He took in Jewish students when they were not welcome elsewhere in Harvard. He took in black students when they were not exactly welcome elsewhere. I mean, they were admitted, yeah, but they weren't made much of. Mm -hmm. But he, James really, person by person, student by student, would take people in. I mean, he understood it. This was Bruno Bettelheim later who said the only real weapon a teacher has is the threat of withdrawal of affection, which means that the, the teacher cares for these people right. that he or she is, is dealing with. Right. And they both created uh, powerful movements around themselves, Emerson Transcendentalism and, and James around this uh, philosophy of pragmatism. But they were teachers, as you're saying, in a very deep sense, and, and the people who learned from them and were inspired from them went on to have incredible lives themselves uh, to, to an extent that's uh, it's almost staggering to think about. Around Emerson in Concord, you had Henry David Thoreau, as you've mentioned, Nathaniel Hawthorne, Walt Whitman was, was very uh, inspired by Emerson, Margaret Fuller, and the list goes on, of course. Mm -hmm. And if, if you keep going to further out circles, Emily Dickinson, uh, Herman Melville. And then James, at, you know, at a later time, in his circle, he had as his students people like George Herbert Mead, George Santayana, Josiah Royce, uh, was very inspirational to John Dewey. And these are some of the great thinkers of the first half of the 20th century. So yeah. the effect of that Emerson had, that James had in terms of these circles they created is almost beyond measure. It's very large. And um, they both recognize that a, a teacher's influence is like the ripples <laughs> spreading out from a rock you throw in the stream. Mm -hmm. And I think they were both very conscious of this, and they lived for it in many ways, because both had had wonderful teachers, too. Who was Emerson's teacher? Well, Emerson had a number of teachers, one of whom um, was his aunt, oh, Mary right. Moody Emerson. Mm -hmm. A wonderful, interesting, very odd intellectual woman of enormous firepower, who didn't write very well, but she had huge influence on, on all the Emerson boys, and particularly on, on Waldo. And, and also, as as I remember, his relationships with people like, well, everyone, Henry David Thoreau, in, particularly in, in in later years, but but Margaret Fuller as well. They were very mutual relationships. Emerson learned a lot from the people in his circle. He was really creating a community of of intellectuals and a, a community of partners. So that's true. He, he even flirted with the idea of having a sort of university at Concord. That's right. 
what he ended up with was a sort of conquered free school, like a free university. Mm-hmm. Oh, I see. You mean in his, sort of in his house? Yeah, just just his house became a sort of university in town. That's true. Now, I was also fascinated that both Emerson and James were part of intellectual circles, you know, around New England, around Harvard University, uh, particularly. But generally, it gave me an appreciation for the the deep intellectual tradition of New England. Well, it does go back quite a ways, and because um, people who are not from New England really get tired of hearing about New England sometimes. <laughs> And I don't blame them, but the remarks made by um, a man named Lowell when he was founding the Lowell Lectureships, he looked around New England and he saw that the soil was so poor that there were so few natural resources, uh, that there was so little manufacturing and so little water power that he thought if the region was ever going to amount to anything, it would have to be in education. And so it was a sort of despairing last choice. I mean, if you could be a great manufacturing power or sea power or something like that, you might do that. But New England had nothing else going for it except education. Mm-hmm. So they made the most of it. And, and so, Robert, you've, well, as you said earlier, it sounds like you devoted 30 years of your life to bringing the lives and the ideas of Thoreau, Emerson, and James in the forms of your biographies. What is it that these great intellects, these great men, uh, have to offer the world today? Well, I think they have as much to offer as they ever had. Emerson talks about the almost unlimited power of the single individual. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't mean individual cut off from the rest of humanity. As you've said and, and noticed very shrewdly, Emerson believed that there is an oversoul, that there is a common mind, that we're all part of it. But the part of it that where each of us is in charge of needs to be insisted on, needs to be grabbed and made something of. And both Emerson and James, I think, would subscribe to something that's more recently been called democratic individualism. This is a sort of the form American society has to take if it's to work. Mm-hmm. It must be democratic, but it must deal with each person as an individual, too. You don't just have broad classes of people. You don't just have kind of people. You certainly don't have stadiums full of non-entities. If democracy is to work, it has to honor each individual and every individual. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I get a profound sense that both Emerson and James believe this, and their work lays a foundation for making it happen. That makes sense. I mean, it's interesting because, as we've talked about, the two philosophies are quite different. But in another sense, uh, they do seem to follow one from the other, particularly in this accenting of the individual. The place of the individual. The, yeah. Yes. And as you said when we very first started to speak, pragmatism is a word that's coming up more and more recently. Uh, that is. Particularly with our new, yeah. uh, our new uh, Obama presidency. I always wonder when I hear people refer to Obama as a pragmatist, if they mean it in the, the, the sense that James would mean it, or if they mean it more in the sense of someone who'll get the job done. If people use the word awfully easily just to mean whatever works at the moment. Right. And that's, of course, not the real deal. The real deal is it's whatever works at the moment for the most people for the longest time. Right. In other words, it's all around. 
ramifications, mm. not just one or two. That's right, because often people see it as a kind of selfish, do what works for you philosophy. No, it's do what works best for all of us. Right, and that, that was, that's why James was often referred to as a, as a moral philosopher. That's right. So I have a thought that I just want to check with you, because I've been reading that, that pragmatism is even in the deeper philosophical sense with, with people like uh, the recently deceased philosopher, American Richard Rorty, and people like Cornell West, is actually having an upswing after going dormant after John Dewey for, for a number of decades. And it occurred to me that pragmatism was, was, was really part of this modernization spirit. It has a very can-do attitude, which probably comes right through from Emerson and a real emphasis on the individual. And I wondered if, with the advent of World War One and then World War Two, if that kind of faith in modernism and progressivism was shaken, which may have led to pragmatism fading from view. I, it's an interesting idea. The, it, it's certainly true that, that both Emerson and James were in some sense eclipsed by in the middle of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure of all the reasons. I mean, partly there was a sort of a surge toward socialism and the notion that these two people were really too much stuck with a kind of individualism we had to get past. Mm. But now that socialism and communism have a long history and can be judged by their results, as well as democracy by its results, people are looking back with new interest to these democratic individualists. It seems like it's something that can be built on. It's something that respects other people, respects people who are unlike us, and it has a kind of tolerance built into it. And it looks like a buildable foundation. Somebody once said, I think it was Sidney Hook, said it um, somewhere in the 50s or 60s, it's unfair, he said, democracy is being judged by its results, and communism is being judged by its ambitions. And <laughs> you can't have a double standard. You have to judge both by their results. I had kind of been thinking that in the American mind or in, in, in the stream of American thinking, there seems to be, on the one hand, uh, and this is probably also reflective in philosophy in general, but since I've been reading the American philosophers, on the one hand, there's this pull towards or, or attraction to a kind of scientific, progressive way of looking at the world, and on the other hand, a more mystical, naturalistic idealistic pull mm -hmm. and in America maybe particularly or maybe not particularly there's running right through the middle of it is is this shot of, of utopian idealism yeah and I've noticed how there's a there's an interplay between these things I mean everything's always heading in this utopian utilitarian direction and even the different thinkers will have their moments where they're more scientifically rational and progressive and moments where they're more naturalistic, mystical, and idealist. Mm -hmm. And that all seems to create the tension that, that allows the philosophies to keep changing and, and developing and progressing. Well, I think both Emerson and James are open to science and the humanities. I uh -huh. think the C.P. Snow notion of the two cultures, the scientific and the humanist, doesn't work for America. If you look at, at Emerson and James, both of them were wide open to science, believed in it all the way down, and believed that it was completely compatible with spiritual life. And that 
seems to me to get us past a, a, a famous little stumbling block that you don't have to choose one or the other. You right. don't have to take science and oppose it to spiritualism or spiritual life and, and, and then not do science. It just doesn't work that way. If what you are interested in is understanding nature and you understand people as part of nature, then I don't see how you can get rid of science. Mm-hmm. And if you follow James and the notion that what matters is our experience, but all of our experience, then I don't see how you can get rid of dreams and wishes and, and hallucinations and all kinds of other things as well. Right, that's true. Well, that's that's an interesting point of view because I, I was struck in your biographies that both Emerson in his time and then James in his time uh, called what they were working on new thought. Emerson referred to his transcendentalism and, and the ideas that he was working with as new thought. James referred to pragmatism as new thought. And it seemed to me that, in a sense, this American philosophy was carving out an alternative between, as you said, the, the rational scientific on the one hand and the spiritual idealistic on the other. And it was a, an, an alternative spirituality, if you will, or, or an American new thought. I think it's true, and I think that what's also significant about it is that with both these people, you have thinkers who are able to express themselves to a wide general public. Mm. Professional philosophers can talk to each other, always have been professors. But one of the interesting things about both Emerson and James are that they are philosophically respectable, but that they are eminently readable. It's true. And they were both wildly popular. We can get to them, yeah. I'm reminded of the student who was asked what a certain professor was like, and he said, Old Professor sure knows a lot, but he can't get it to me. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these people can get it to you. Right, that's true. Robert, this was great. I think that's perfect. Well, good. It's been great fun. Thanks very much, Robert. You bet. Thanks, Jeff. Bye now. Bye.